Let's go ahead and just bow our heads again for a word of prayer before we commence here. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee this morning for this opportunity. And Father, oft when we pray, we bow our heads and we do so to confess unto Thee that we should have the reverence that a child should have for a father, that one who is lost and has now been found should have. And that's why we bow our heads, and oftentimes we close our eyes, Father. And it's because we desire to, for at least a few moments, remove our eyes from the things of this world and to place them upon Thyself. For we desire to listen to Thee and to recognize whom thou art and our father often when we pray we pray quietly and again it's because we want to quiet our hearts and be still and know that thou art god and father many times when we pray when we come to a passage of scripture like this and we seek thy leading we clasp our hands together and we do so because we want them to be emptied of the busyness of this world and of the things that we hold so dear as human beings And we want them to be free and ready for thy use, for the master's use. And so, Father, as we come to this passage in Scripture, we ask that thy spirit would lead us individually, that we might be convicted, that we might fall deeper in love with our Savior, and that thusly we might be obedient and pleasing and honoring unto him. And so we pray this as we come to this gospel of Mark and this almost terse, abrupt comments on the gospel and the consequences of it, that we would recognize what you have for us this morning. We commit it unto thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read from Mark 16 then, as we begin to take a bit of a look, and as Gary Wilson said this morning, study uh, the word of God. We'll begin in verse 14. Mark chapter 16. Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Now we've been using these um, commands or these charges at the ends of these gospels as sort of a backbone for what we are desiring to learn this week. And we seek to look at some of the salient factors in each one. That's certainly true. But additionally, we want to do some comparison and contrast. Because surely the Lord is not giving mere mere repetition 
one to the next and to the next, though we love repetition and we need so many things in our lives reinforced. But we're going to notice now that this mark is going to take a slightly different tact. And if you were to read Luke, which Lord willing will be able to do here before the end of this session, the contrast is quite incredible. As we read through it yesterday, you might have noticed that Mark almost takes a complete summary of what transpires between that crucifixion and resurrection and the ascension. As an example, Matthew didn't mention the ascension at all, did he? He left us with that wonderful promise and that wonderful fact because Scripture is filled with the promises of God that He is always with us. And that's where Matthew left us. But Mark's going to take us to the tomb and share with us who's been there and give us just a a little picture of the two on the road to Emmaus, which, of course, Luke is going to pick up. And he's going to take us through the words of the Lord Jesus, but very succinct, very short. And then he's going to speak about that which confirmed these words. And then he does take us to the ascension. It's a beautiful summary, but it's very short, is it not? It is almost, as we mentioned, abrupt, terse, sudden. And we're struck by that fact as we read it. Let's read it again. Verse 15, go ye into all the world, preach the gospel unto every creature. And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned, he says. Two verses. And that's why maybe if you have these outlines that we attempted to put together here that we have called it the commission of gospel consequences. There's no question, is there? Mark is going to lead us to the end Of all men, all of mankind. And there are two options. And the Lord says it is either eternal salvation or it is eternal damnation. Now, a couple of just short notes here as we read, because some of these things might come to question. But notice this little statement in verse 16. He that believeth and additionally is baptized, it says, shall be saved. Now, there are those, in fact, most of Christendom today that believe in what might be called baptismal regeneration. That you must believe, surely, but you must additionally be baptized in order to be saved. Is that true? Well, be careful, right? Because in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, there is a salvation to baptism. But it is not salvation from the consequence and the penalty of our sins. When he gets right down to the point of it at the end of that verse, why is it that an individual is damned? There is one singular comment, and it is this. Because they have not believed, he says. And we're not going to take that up today, but we know that as Larry said earlier, the Lord has made a tremendous way of salvation. It is also a simple way of salvation in the sense that we only have to believe and call upon the name of the Lord, and whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, it may be one of the hardest things that we do as human beings, transferring everything that we are and have and 
what our desires are and completely turning them over to the Lord. That is not an easy thing. And what the Lord Jesus went through, especially as we're going to find it in the Gospel of Luke, was something that we cannot even conceive of the expense that he paid. But those that do not believe, it says, shall be damned. Now, if we were to turn to John, and I hadn't necessarily written this down, but in John chapter 3, let's go ahead and read just a couple of verses. John chapter 3 and verse 18 will keep ourselves awake a little bit by turning in the scripture and putting our eyes on some of these thoughts. What is it that finally condemns a person to hell? You talk about a good question, an ultimate question. What is the singular thing, or more if there are more, that will keep an individual and that soul out of heaven? Well, we read what Mark said. Notice what John says in verse 18 in this very familiar, famous passage. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. And if you need a little reinforcement, here it is at the end of that verse. Because for the reason that he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The ultimate summary The cardinal sin, if you want to put it that way. That sole thing which will keep a soul out of heaven and from the presence of the Lord is a person who does not believe. Look at John chapter 16. And this is in the context of the working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the world and the lives of individuals. In verse 8, John chapter 16, when he has come, speaking of the Holy Spirit, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, look at this phrase, because they believe not in me, he says. It isn't your sins that keep you out of heaven. Christ died for our sins and they can be eradicated because he's paid for them and the judgment has been met. But it is man's decision not to believe in the only begotten Son of God. Now, this is Mark here. Mark is talking about drastic things, things which ought to bring us to our knees and open our our mouths, the final, abrupt reality of the human soul. It's a wake-up call, isn't it? Now, if you have your outline, we'll just very quickly take a short look at it, but notice the condition, first of all, of these apostles again. It's reiterated from what was stated in the Gospel of Matthew. Look at verse 14, almost strengthened here. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven. He upbraided them. There's a hard word, a, a harsh word. With their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. You know, belief in another individual is going to determine, as we've just been speaking about, our eternal consequence, our eternal life. It behooves us as long as we can. Yes, carefully. Yes, we trust through the Spirit. Yes, with maturity. But it behooves us to believe others as well. And brothers and sisters, it puts a great onus upon us that when we state something and when we live a life for the Lord, that we ought to be 
believable as well. And boy, it hits at the very heart of what Jacob was like, doesn't it? And what you and I can be like. Was Jacob believable in chapter 27 in the book of Genesis? And he wasn't, was he? But our God is believable. Go ye into all the world, then, he says. The condition of their heart, he's still going to work with them. He still desires to use them. And that's this next thought of the commission itself. Go and preach. All the world, not one soul left out. I like John chapter 1 and verse 9. That the Lord Jesus himself is that light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. There isn't a soul in this world that is outside of the love of God and outside of the brightness of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he's done. No person exists in the shade. He is the light which lighteth every man. And so he says, go, preach to all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, the commission. But now again, we come to this consequence. He that believes and is baptized, that's the natural result of of believing, is continuing to believe and being baptized. It is so natural that it's right in the next breath, right in the next phrase. They believe and they are baptized because they long to glorify the Lord in their obedience to Him. But he that believeth not, it says, shall be damned. Now in Luke chapter 5, and I I just thought of this story when we think of drastic measures and drastic consequences. Look at Luke chapter 5. I think these may have been men that would have been much like Mark and Mark's character. And this is a familiar passage to you and a familiar story and a, and a fun story, an enjoyable story to read and one to, to preach on as well. But verse 18, Luke chapter 5. Behold, men brought in a bed, in a bed, a man which was taken in palsy. And they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Now these people took the man just exactly as he was. It was his couch he was on, right? And they recognized his need. And this was only a human need. This was a physical need that he had. They couldn't by any means get into the house. And what do they do? They get on the roof and they rip the roof apart. Have you done that to your neighbor's house recently? You've got to think about this a little bit. The roof is the place of protection, isn't it? And they climb up on that roof because if by any means they wanted him in the presence of the Lord and they pull that roof apart, I don't know what people thought of them. Maybe it was the owner that did it. It could have been. The story doesn't tell. Maybe he said, I'm not concerned about the roof of my house. Let's pull it apart. Let's get him into the presence of the, of the Lord Jesus and take care of business. Drastic measures. And here's Mark, powerful in its seriousness and in its, brevet, its brevity. It is abrupt, abrupt. It is compelling. It is commanding, isn't it? Now, the gospel is dogmatic in how exclusive it is. It makes no bones about the fact 
that it is the only way to the Lord. There aren't two ways to the top. There are not hundreds of the way of hundreds of ways to the top of Half Dome, and there are those, right? Now you and I think there's one nice way with a cable, but people have taken thousands of ways up there, I'm sure. But there is one way to the Lord, and there's many reasons that He does it, and certainly one of them ha- has to be because He so loves man, He so desires them to come, unwilling that any should perish, that He doesn't want there to be any question about the manner and about the way. And with Mark, there's no question. He says, he that believes will be saved. As simple as that. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so he is very direct, is he not? And I believe it's a little bit like an alarm clock. Mark is that when you look at him in contrast to some of these other gospel writers and the commission that they give. He's like that alarm clock that wakes us up way too early in the morning, at least we think, and it abruptly pulls us out of our sleep. And we hear those words of Paul in Romans, it is high time to wake out of our sleep. And this is what Mark's purpose is, I believe. He is giving us the dire, eternal consequences of unbelief. And he does not mince words. That word damnation is not likely one that we use in our everyday conversations with people. It's a big word. It's a precise word. It's a word that oftentimes is used by individuals when they swear. It's a strong word. But Mark uses it. And he says, damnation is the end of these. It's high time to wake out of sleep. I was just thinking of this story of the disciples when they were in the ship. And you will recollect that the Lord Jesus is in the bottom of the boat resting because he's in control of all things. And he's absolutely at peace. And they make this statement to the Lord. They say, Lord, do you care not that we perish? Carest thou not that we perish. This is a physical happening. They're worried. They're not at peace. And they say, Lord, do you not care that we perish in the midst of that storm on the sea? And it isn't very long after this that the Lord Jesus himself, as he is going to now contemplate the storm that he is going to take, The fact that all of the waves and the billows of God are going to flow over him and he will not have a boat to rest on the top of them and ride on the top of them. And the Lord Jesus calls to his disciples and he says, pray, doesn't he? Watch and pray. And the Lord Jesus goes on and before the father is only a son and is only an infinite son can deal with the father, contemplating that he's going to become that which he hated and that which God cannot look upon. And if there's any possibility, O God, remove this cup from me and there's silence in heaven because there's no other way. And when he goes back and checks with those disciples, what are they doing now? In the midst of this storm. On one hand it's just a physical storm. And the Lord Jesus is sleeping. Because he's at peace. But now we're talking about the souls of men. And their eternal destinies. And the cross of Christ. 
And it's our habit, isn't it, sometimes, to be sleeping when the important things are at hand. And when unimportant things are at hand, our eyes are wide open and we cannot sleep because our care does not really rest in the right place. And we'll lay awake at night, young people, I remember it, waiting for a test the next day. I can't even remember a test that I took right now as I look back on it. And I'd lay awake all night worrying about it. But when was the last time you laid awake all night worrying about the soul of another individual? Now, we can get up, and we were talk, I was talking to Doug yesterday. He, for a while, spent some time in Wisconsin, and my, my father's from Wisconsin, a lot of my father's family, and they're these cheeseheads, you know? And they get out during this football game, and they wear these funny objects on their head, and you find people without shirts on at 10 degrees or 15 degrees Fahrenheit, and they're crazy people, we think, right? And they sort of put themselves at stake for these kinds of things, and they look odd, and and people look at them and say, what in the world? We get up for hunting, ask Larry. I mean, 3.30 in the morning, and it's minus zero in Colorado, and the snow's blowing, and it's dark, and you can't see, but you've got to make it to a meadow up there because you think there's one one-thousandth of a chance of an elk walking out. And so you get up there at dark, you know, and you sit there, and you chatter, and and yet we cannot hardly get up five minutes before our alarm rings and we have to chase off to work to think about the souls of mankind. And here's Mark in this gospel. And it is abrupt. Look at this statement after he says again. And I, I just want to read it over and over almost to shock us into reality. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not, he says, shall be damned and as we made mention of yesterday some individuals are sort of careful bible expositors and others are just hand grenade tossers and that's mark right he throws the explosion into it and he says wake up christian it's time to recognize the final end of all of mankind Now, just in conclusion, before we move on to the Gospel of Luke, because we'd like to press on through some of these here today, but I'd like to just point out two things again. And it goes back just a little bit in the direction that Larry is heading us here as well. That the wonder of it all is that our God can take Jacobs like us, men and women with hard hearts who disbelieve, and He can in His goodness And in his grace, turn us into servants of the living God. Look, it says here again, men of hardness, unbelief, because they believe not them which had seen him after that he was risen. And he speaks directly to them. And he says, go ye. It is a good thing that the Lord is going to be working with them. Verse 19, so then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven And sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them. And confirming the word with signs following. It isn't our purpose to take up these thoughts of signs that the Lord used. It says to confirm the things that they were stating. And that followed those that believed in verse 17. But it is interesting, at least, just to take note of this. And you might enjoy the study at some point. Signs, 
wonders, miracles. Praise the Lord today. Our God is still a miracle working God. But as far as working with signs through the hands of men, how many time periods in Scripture do you find that happening? The Old Testament. What individuals, and help me a little bit, what individuals had that experience of seeing signs worked or actually working signs? What individuals in the Old Testament? Elijah and Elisha. There's, there's a group. There's a couple of men, right? Go back a little bit before then. Moses. There's another individual in his life. But you take note in the Old Testament, it's not easy to come up with big expanses of time where these things happened, is it? In the Old Testament, the pattern is this, that there were individuals for a short amount of time as the Lord saw fit that did amazingly miraculous things by God's power. But it was a very limited amount of time. In the New Testament, again, the same thing carries forth, isn't it? Very limited amount of time with a certain amount of individuals for a short time period. Even by the time we get to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, which is, by the way, the last mention of anything like this happening, it is done so in the negative sense because they were not doing it, shall we say, or perceiving it correctly. Signs following. You might enjoy looking at some of these things. Today, we thank the Lord that the wonder of it all is that he can still work miracles and still does. Physically, we see things happen that are unbelievable, aren't they? Praise the Lord for them. Circumstantially every day, the meetings that we see, they're miraculous. We sat around the table last night and Tom and, and um, Grant and others were sharing some amazing things that had happened timing-wise and through the Lord. These are the miracles that the Lord continues to do today. Praise the Lord for it. But again, they were unbelieving believers in a sense. The Lord took them up. He used them. And they went forth and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them. And I think that's a nice phrase to take note of. These were not individuals that were working without the Lord. Or were working against the Lord. They wanted to work with the Lord. And the Lord longed, as the phrase says, to work with them. The Lord working with them. I'm afraid that many times in our own work, our thought is that we want the Lord to work along with us. And the priority becomes our direction. And what we seem to enjoy and what we think is right instead of just having our eyes solely on the Lord and our trust solely in the Lord. It's so easy for us to give God directives and to say, Lord, this is what we'd like you to do today. And to treat him as people say, you know, as the divine butler and the chauffeur and, you know, at our beck and call. But we long to be working with the Lord and it's there that we'll find blessing. And so Mark then concludes this wonderful statement concerning what the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples in the final days with a resounding amen. Now let's go to the Gospel of Luke. I'm thankful that we have just a bit of time here because we're going to see some contrast between this man Mark as he was 
moved by the Holy Spirit. And now Luke, as he's going to be moved by the Holy Spirit to pick out certain things concerning these last moments, these last days of the Lord Jesus with him. And we're going to call this now not in contrast, not the the final consequences of the gospel, but let's call it the details of the gospel or the fundamentals of the gospel. Leave it to Dr. Luke to dissect the gospel, right? And praise the Lord for it. Because when we go out into the battle, we want to have the proper weapons. And we want to understand what the gospel really is. And so we're going to find that Luke now is going to take it, and he's going to take it up in much more detail. Let's read together, beginning in verse 44. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses or spectators of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. And now for the third time, we have amen. Have you begun to notice some of the differences? The actual charge back in Mark was a single verse with, I believe, just one sentence and two phrases. Dr. Luke is going to record for us and extend upon that and amplify that. And he's going to give us again what we have called the fundamental truths of the gospel, the the details, let's call it, of the gospel. Do you know that I heard recently that 80 to 90 percent, and I'm not sure where they come up with something like this, but 80 to 90 percent of those that say that they trust the Lord really fall away and probably in the in the final analysis were never even saved. We have a man back in Colorado Springs that worked for the Billy Graham Crusades for a number of years. And the reason that he moved on in another direction of ministry in a local assembly was this. Listen, praise the Lord for Billy Graham and the work that he's done. And you and I both know individuals who have been saved, saved through his ministry by the goodness of God. This is in no way to denigrate his ministry. But he said that as they would go back and and have another series of meetings in a city that they had had them before, say a decade before, a year before, or whatever it was, they would attempt to look up individuals. And he said it was rare that we could ever find one. And he said, we had contact. 
with local churches who were working with these individuals that were saved to help them, to work on them and work with them on a personal level, to bring them into the local church. We had all of those contacts, and he said it was hard for us to find where these men and women actually were. Now, that's only to say this, that it is easy to profess, but is the reality really there? Is the understanding actually there? That goes back to Mark, doesn't it? Do you discern the final eternal consequences? Do you understand the gospel? And do you stand upon the promises of Scripture and receive the Lord Jesus? Or is it just a flow of emotion because of a concert that, you know, raise your hand if you want to be saved and hundreds of people raise their hand, but they have no understanding of what the Lord Jesus actually did for them. And now Luke is going to come to bear. After we've been shocked back into reality and we trust awoken out of our sleep. And he's going to say, let's take a look at the gospel. And let's see what the Lord has done for us. Boy, thank the Lord that what we preach is not some generic social gospel. But it's the gospel of the blessed God. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing we note in verse 46, the Lord Jesus said unto them, thus it is written. There's no better place to go with a soul that is seeking the Lord. And that's to open the book, isn't it? Thus it is written. It's not based on my idea and my expression of the gospel. The best thing to do, well, take them to the Romans road or take them to first John chapter five or John chapter 3 or wherever you'd like to. But it's based upon the written word of God. We mustn't forget that. And the Lord Jesus, of course, he's already drawn things concerning himself from the law of Moses, verse 44. In the prophets, in the Psalms, those things concerning himself. He desires to open their understanding so that they can understand what is written. The scriptures. And he says unto them, firstly, then, thus it is written. The revelation and the fulfillment of Scripture, the truth of the word of God. And then he says, secondly, and this is an interesting phrase. Look at this phrase in verse 46 with me. And thus it behooved Christ to suffer. Now, you and I might have said it behooved Christ to die. But this says it behooved Christ to suffer. Now, that word behooved is the identical word used back in verse 44 that is there translated must. In fact, most often when we find it in the New Testament, it's translated with that force must be. It must occur. No question about it. Thus, it says Christ must suffer not just die brother and sister not just stand in our stead but it says that he must suffer spend some time meditating upon that in scripture and it will melt your heart to tears and you will fall in love with the god that loved you so much that he was willing to come into a sinful world And not just die, but to suffer 
the consequence of our sins. Even earlier in the chapter, in verse 26, it says this, the Lord Jesus himself renders it, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Remember, it's Peter that speaks about this wonderful correlation, suffering and then glory. And it's not just the wages of sin that he's going to bear for us. He's going to bear the wretchedness and the wickedness of the heart of man. And he's going to suffer at the hands of men. And it melts our heart to tears when we look at our blessed Savior, a crown of thorns thrust and beaten down into his head, and a back that was plowed unlike any other, and a face that Scripture says, and we have to believe it, not merely marred, but marred more than any man. And it is these kinds of thoughts that we have and these types of meditations that often are before our minds and hearts at the Lord's Supper when we come in our appreciation to Him and recognize that He gave His body and He shed His blood that He might die for us. And Luke comes before, brings before our attention. And it's Luke and Peter, by the way, that use this word more than anybody else in the New Testament. This idea of suffering. And he says, brother and sister, the Lord Jesus died, yes, but He suffered on our behalf. And oh, how it can change our lives when we recognize what the Lord Jesus has done. By His stripes, we are healed. And it became Him that we would be perfected through His sufferings. And so Luke wants to bring that to our attention. Draw us to the sacrifice and change our lives. Remember Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And we're not certain exactly what it was, perhaps, that drew them from beyond the darkness like Nicodemus in chapter 3 or Joseph as he was a, a wealthy and a man that stood in the councils of the Jews and suddenly they went out in profound testimony and took the body of the Lord Jesus and stood with him. But perhaps it was the cross work of the Lord Jesus that changed their hearts and they stood for him. And Luke says that it behooved him to suffer, suffer. Look thirdly then, again in Luke chapter 24. And it says, to rise from the dead the third day. Don't forget the resurrection of the Lord Jesus in the gospel. That he conquered sin, death, and hell, and he tore the bars away, and he has destroyed that last great enemy called death. And the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. We were talking to Kirk a little bit yesterday and we were talking some physics, you know, and you might remember those two great laws that lie at the very root of all of physics, what we call the quantity law and the quality law. The quantity law where mass and energy always remain constant. And the quality law where everything is dropping off. We call it entropy, right? It's going from a stage of order to disorder. And this is the one time, almost, one of the few times in the history of men where those laws which order and define our three-dimensional existence in the world were absolutely destroyed and turned backwards. And the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, gloriously, triumphantly. 
in that little statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what we call the gospel in a nutshell, that he died according to the scriptures and that he rose. Don't forget it, says Luke. He rose again from the dead. And he says that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance and, he says, remission of sins. A change of mind is what repentance is. About ourself, about the Lord, about the cross. We stand back with the Lord and we look at our Jacobian life, right? We look at our life and the sin in which we dwell and how far we fall short of the glory of God and we agree with Him about it all, about our wretchedness, about our sin, and we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, you're the only one. And His absolute remission of sins. Remember repentance. The Lord preached it. Mark chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15. Repent and believe. Peter at Pentecost. Repent and be baptized every one of you. Paul at Athens. God commandeth all men everywhere, he says, to repent. And so Luke is now leading us through these details of the gospel. And we must quit here because we long to be a good testimony to the rangers and to others that are around us. And we've hit our appointed time. But recognize again, Mark, in that tremendous commission that he gives, draws us to the final eternal reality of the souls of men and what it takes to be truly saved eternally. And now Luke is going to almost, you see the spirit as he picks up in his wonderful wisdom. Luke is going to say, all right, what it means to be saved. And he's going to give us some tremendous detail. Scripture is where we start, brother and sister. And it draws us to the Lord Jesus Christ from Old Testament to New Testament. The relationship that he's bringing us into. It's based on Scripture. And he says, don't forget, the rev- don't forget to preach that wonderful thing that God himself rose, the resurrection. And don't forget repentance, remittance of sins. And that's where we'll pick up again tomorrow, Lord willing. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that our sins have been removed as far as the east and the west. They've been dropped into the depths of the sea. And those are only the figurative thoughts concerning it. It's so much greater than that. The Lord Jesus has taken the penalty and he's paid the price. And there is none that can stand at the bar of God and say that we are not just as perfect as God's own son. And it's all because of his work. And we just thank you that those handwritings, those ordinances have been nailed to his cross. And they have been taken out of our way. And by placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can know for certain forever that we're his children and will reside with him for all of eternity. Father, we commit this day unto thee, the activities therein. We do pray for safety. We pray for opportunity as well. And whether it's at the campground or the cafeteria or with family that perhaps are staying with us but not quite willing to come out, to listen 
whether it's young people, we pray for these upcoming gospel meetings over these next evenings. And we ask thee, Lord, that we will all come together to rejoice in the goodness of the Lord and his wonderful salvation. And that by the working of the word of God and the Holy Spirit, that they will see Jesus and recognize that Jesus loved them and gave himself for them. We commit this unto thee at this time. And we pray in Jesus' saving name. Amen.